Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It is October 17th. This is a new podcast. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for all the emails after each episode with your feedback. It's all greatly appreciated. And as anyone knows who writes to me, I actually do take the criticisms, the positives, the negatives into account, and I try to change things for the next episode. Now, this one is going to be a bit of a strange one. It's an experiment, I suppose. I'm going to devote a, a large portion of the podcast today to, to the Hells Angels federal extortion case that I uh, briefly spoke about last week. And I don't know if this is going to work out, but this was a case that I literally had. To, it was done. It was ready for trial. All I had to do was, was show up in court. When uh, the government backed down and, and uh, dismissed the charges of extortion against two accounts against my client and then uh, offered us a misprison of felony, which guaranteed no jail time, and we ended up taking it. And the reason we got the great deal was because of the massive amount of uh, research and investigation we had done on the sole cooperating witness in the case. And none of that ever saw the light of day. And when I look back on it, and this is from early February 2012, so it's been almost 11 years, it's one of the greatest crosses I ever wrote. And I wrote an opening statement as well. I mean, the case was done. So I'm thinking about the, for this episode of reading that opening statement and also doing some of the cross. I mean, it was 109 pages, I believe, and single-spaced and small font. I could see better back then. I'm not going to do all of it, but I would do some of it just to show you uh, the thinking that goes into it, the the effort that goes into it, and what you can do even though the government turns over no helpful information to you. So I'm going to get into that after I hit some topics that are in the news. I figure I should do that first, and we'll see how it goes. You'll either like it or hate it. You know, this is a podcast that's really two distinct separate podcasts and appeals to two separate groups with some overlap. You've got people that listening to me now either listen to me when I was doing talk radio years ago, almost 10 years ago in New York City every day, and I stopped. And there's some listeners from that. And there's some people that are listening to me having no idea that I did talk radio, but it's for the same purpose. They want to hear me opine about, uh, you know, current events for whatever reason. I guess they've got slow days. And then there's the other half are people that are interested in true crime, that are interested in real true crime stories. I'm not here to just produce stuff and read off a script. I mean, I lived this stuff. I did it. And there's an interest in it. And uh, I want to give you the opportunity to hear things firsthand from somebody who had some of the biggest criminal cases, uh, not just in New York, but in the world, and uh, understand how my thinking goes, what goes into it, the effort. I I receive a lot of emails, a lot of messages from law students, uh, high school students that want to become lawyers, even young lawyers, even not so young lawyers that have questions about the things that I do. So it's sort of a balance, and uh, we may balance a little heavier on the legal part of it today. Now, regarding current events, I'm not going to hit too much, but Joe Biden, Jesus, uh, he he just can't stop lying. He had this incredibly bad week. I I didn't think that it could get much worse for him, but it did, and it got worse for America as well. And I just, just wanted to count the lies just from like the last week. You know, everybody knows that Donald Trump can't control himself from lying. He lies all the time, obviously. But Joe Biden is a prolific, a fantastic, an Olympic gold medal liar. 
And people forget it because they compare him to Trump. Well, Joe Biden like invented lying pretty much while in office. I mean, this guy was was amazing. But anyway, we're going to go into some of the stuff from just this week. He he had the the gall to say that inflation was only at two percent. And what he said was, well, you know, read the fine print. It's the average over the last three months. So what he's saying is that inflation only went up. It's only 2% over the last three months. But why not just say that there's been no inflation over the last 24 hours and then say that that's what inflation is. It's at zero. The fact is, is that inflation is at like 8.2 or 8.3%. And it's measured year to year. And it was 1.4% basically non-existent when he took office and he's been in office for less than two years and we've got inflation you know back to the jerry ford whip inflation now buttons i remember that as a kid if you're american and you're of a certain age you remember those stupid buttons that they were handing out joe biden has turned this country into jerry ford's america from 1976 and what's incredible is that because of the inflation, because what it does is it increases the prices of everything. You can't, you can't avoid it. You can't eat certain things. You can't drive certain things. You can't uh, get on the road. You can't buy gas. You, you can't do anything. You can't go to the dry cleaner. You can't buy something off of Amazon without feeling the bite of this massive 40-year high inflation that Joe Biden caused. So what it's doing is that it's taking regular Americans, I'll call them the working class because that's what Democrats like to call people that don't make a lot of money. They're the working class as opposed to me that works seven days a week and makes a lot of money. I'm not the working class. Apparently, I pay more taxes than 99.9% of Americans and work more than 99.99% of Americans, but I'm not part of the working class. I'm just some jerk off who uh, makes a lot of money. Anyway, 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck because every single household item, food, everything, that's what they're having to to pay extra for. So it's eating their income away. 61%, that's the highest of all time. 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They're barely getting by. The average American family is losing $6,000 in annual wages due to Biden's inflation. And yet he keeps bragging about how much spending his party is doing, unaware that that's driving the inflation even higher. He also said that our economy is, quote, strong as hell. And we're in the midst, you know, of a recession, of course. Uh, We've got a 40-year high inflation and 20-year high in mortgage rates. But he had the fucking balls. And excuse my language, I have a potty mouth sometimes. I apologize. But he had the fucking balls to say that the economy is strong and that inflation is 2%. This is a guy that is willing to lie to your face. He was confronted in California by a reporter about the $7 a gallon gas there. He lied and he said, it's always been the case that gas is $7 a gallon there. That's just a lie. He's just making stuff up. It's not true. In California, gas prices have surged 39% just in the last year. Gas has never been this high. He doesn't even know. I don't know if he's lying or he just doesn't remember. It's hard to tell because he's clearly demented. You know, I don't, maybe he's just confused. But then uh, he said that housing was the most important thing for gas prices to go down. What does that even mean? Housing is linked with gas prices? 
that's like that old thing when you were a kid. I mean, kind of hate to to talk about stuff from the seventies, uh, but you know, this is what all my memories are from. Remember the old the joke that would end no soap radio. You tell a joke, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? No soap radio. It's like a joke. It means nothing. And that's the joke. That's what Joe Biden is. He's just housing and gas prices. Doesn't make any sense. Now, this confusion is not to be confused with him looking for that dead Jackie Walorski, the congresswoman at an event, uh, the Indiana congresswoman who was killed in a car crash. Just eight weeks after mourning her death publicly, Biden, who lowered the White House flags in her honor, he called her family to offer condolences. He forgot all that, and he's in, a, in some event, and he's called, where's Jackie? Where is she? Stand up, Jackie. She's fucking dead, man. You know that she's dead. He then publicly apologized to Walorski's family for his mistake, and I give him credit. At least he owned that one. But that was only after his affirmative action, gay black imbecile press secretary, insisted that Biden hadn't made a mistake and knew that she was dead, even as he was asking for her in a crowd of live people. We just can't, we can't just keep getting lied to. I know that Democrats were frustrated with Trump because he couldn't tell the truth. But, you know, the antidote to lies is not more lies. It's less lies. It's transparency. Last week, Biden claimed that, that firefighters nearly died extinguishing a 2004 fire at his Delaware home after saying last year that the house burned down with his wife inside it. I wish. The fire department instead claimed that the fire was insignificant and was put out in 20 minutes. Does that sound like a, a fire that, that people nearly died in it? Now, these lies can't be attributed just to his dementia because he is a lifelong liar. He dropped out of his first presidential campaign in 1987 uh, due to uh, it coming out that he plagiarized speeches and that he plagiarized the law school paper. I mean, geez, I've been to law school. It's not that hard. You just do the work. Lazy, dummy. Biden stole British politician Neil Kinnock's description of his family history. He stole somebody's life. He's like like Kramer and Seinfeld. And and Biden uh, changing he was changing details to falsely claim this is Neil Kinnock's life. My ancestors worked in the coal mines of northeast Pennsylvania and would come up after twelve hours and play football for four hours. His ancestors did not mine coal just made it up. He thinks he's Neil Kinnock. He thought no one would know that he was lying. Before he dropped out of the 1988 presidential primary, Biden lied when he said that he graduated with three degrees from college, was named the outstanding student in the political science department, went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my class to have a full academic scholarship, and ended up in the top half of his class. Lie, 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 lie. They're all lies he thinks he can lie to your face and no one will check up on him that's a bad kind of liar he admitted last month to the south african president that he wasn't arrested trying to visit nelson mandela during the apartheid era despite he said it three times in 2020 lie 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 Last September, he told Jewish leaders that he remembered, quote, spending time at and going to Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018 after the worst anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history, in which 11 people were, were shot to death. The synagogue said he never visited. He's just making it up. Later that month, 
Biden told an Idaho audience that his first job offer came from the local lumber and wood products business, Boise Cascade. The company said it never happened. In January, he told students at historically black colleges in Atlanta that he was arrested multiple times while protesting in favor of civil rights. It never happened. He said at the Naval Academy's graduation ceremony just this past May that he was pointed to the military school in 1965 by uh, late Delaware Senator Caleb Boggs. It never happened. He also begged the Saudis not to cut oil production. This happened last week. In an effort just to keep gas prices lower, he wanted more oil keeps gas prices lower. So he begged the Saudis secretly not to cut oil production, which is what they had planned to for a while. And he asked them to not cut the production until after the midterm elections next month. Not only did the Saudis refuse, but they squealed publicly on him and they said what he did. It shows that he's playing politics on such an important issue. He doesn't care that gas prices are high for you and me. He only cares if it could cost his party votes next month. Then, of course, the Saudis could do whatever he wanted, which is what he said. He can do, they can do whatever they want to Americans, cutting production and then driving the prices high. We're all struggling with it, or at least, you know, I would hope we are if you drive. But how sick is this? He's making decisions that are affecting our foreign relations, which solely are being done for votes, not for what's right in America. And naturally, of course, uh, Democrats flipped out. Now they're calling for a reevaluation of our relations with the Saudis. They're threatening the Saudis, our second most important Middle Eastern ally, with an arms embargo because they won't delay cutting oil production for 30 days? Is that really fair? Because you won't help Democrats get votes on November 7th? You're going to cut sales of arms to Saudi Arabia? They're in the middle of a war. I mean, how utterly sick is this? He's going to cost people lives because the Saudis won't help him win votes? And it, and it again, this does not help Americans cutting oil production, not cutting for 30 extra days. It only helps Joe Biden and his political party. It's utterly disgusting. He should be impeached for this. As an aside, by the way, it's similar to what Biden is doing when he talks about forgiving ten dollars or $20,000 of student loans. He did that because he knows young people hate him like everybody else does, and he wants their votes, and they're all excited, and they're too dumb to understand that there's litigation now about this issue, and it's going to end up in the Supreme Court, and he's going to lose, and none of you dummies that think you're getting ten dollars or $20,000, you're not going to get shit. But Biden doesn't care as long as the young people think that they are when they go to the polls in a few weeks. He knows he's not getting it. The Supreme Court is conservative. He knows he's not winning that issue. He just wants their votes. This is Biden. Everything is politics. Nothing is about what's good for you or me. Only what's good for him. Now, the point of, of threatening the Saudis, if they don't help Joe Biden during the midterm elections, you understand that, that we're expecting the Saudis to be our lapdogs, which is fine, except that the Democratic Party has been shitting all over them for years. Last year, Biden pulled three Patriot missile batteries out of Saudi Arabia and ended the permanent stationing of an aircraft carrier in the region while they were in the midst of a war. It exposed the Saudis to great dangers uh, from the Iranian terror proxy, the Houthis in Yemen, where there's a war, and also their main enemy, uh, Iran. 
Biden also ripped the Saudis publicly for the murder of Muslim terrorist supporter and non-American citizen Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. Khashoggi was just a, a crazed anti-Semite. He counted Osama bin Laden as a friend. He mourned and he wept when bin Laden was killed. This is a guy that we're threatening relations with Saudi Arabia for? Some scumbag terrorist? Come on. Come on, who cares that he's dead? We're going to destroy our relationship? This is a hugely important ally in the Middle East. The Middle East is hugely important. We assume that we have Israel's uh, support, but an Arab country that wants to help us? The Saudis, we're going to shit on them? Really? Did we break off all ties with the Palestinians when they murdered Bobby Kennedy? Or countless other Americans? Or did we give them billions of dollars? What about China? They unleashed uh, the coronavirus on us. They destroyed our economy. They killed a million Americans. What do we do to them in response? But the Saudis need to get threatened. When he was running for president, Biden vowed to make Saudi Arabia an international pariah. He said it, his words, not mine. And now he's begging them for oil, which we wouldn't need if he didn't kneecap our own oil production in America. On his very first day in office, he killed the Keystone Pipeline, which would have brought 830,000 barrels of Canadian oil down south into America, and he killed the thousands of good-paying jobs that came along with it. In March, he put a moratorium on oil leasing on federal land, which a judge later found to be illegal. Later, he canceled the, the Trump-era oil leases in Alaska. He's been making you know, the climate like his top priority. And he declared war on the American energy industry to do it. And now he has to beg for oil from foreign countries, people he doesn't necessarily like. And the Saudis did what was best for them. And for that, I, I salute them. Biden is shitting all over the Saudis at the same time he's begging Iran to take $100 billion uh, as part of a nukes deal to use against Americans, to use against our allies, and, of course, all the good citizens of Iran who are being slaughtered in the streets for protesting against the terrorist regime which controls them. And Biden is trying to give them money? How about some support, buddy? You get rid of uh, the uh, Iranian leadership, the whole world changes. You get rid of the terrorists that run Iran, and guess what? Hamas, the Palestinian terror organization, Islamic Jihad, another Palestinian terror organization, they dry up. Hezbollah, the Lebanese terrorist organization that's, that's supported by Iran, that has taken over Lebanon, that threatens Israel, threatens the entire Middle East, that's helped gas people in Syria, they don't have any more money if you take out Iran. The whole world changes if the Middle East is no longer a, a hotbed of violence. And Biden wants to give Iran $100 billion? He should be squeezing the life out of them. He should be helping the young people that are giving their lives up to try to get some freedom there. I mean, come on. So with America in the, in the total dumpster economically, foreign policy issues as well in the dumpsters. It wouldn't even be alarmist or even hyperbole, I suppose, to say that America is in a death spiral. Eh, maybe a little bit hyperbole, but not really. Trump leads Biden by just two points in a poll for the 2024 election. Two points. Which is why if Trump is the Republican nominee, Biden, assuming that he's still alive, will beat him again. Instead of capitalizing on Biden's horrible two years, Trump is caught up in the consequences of his own idiotic decisions. 
Uh, he's being subpoenaed to appear before the January 6th commission, which put up a witness last week that testified that Trump admitted losing the election to Biden before he really ginned up and caused the January 6th march on the Capitol when he was lying and said that he had really won. And the Supreme Court, which contains three Trump-appointed justices, they ruled against them last week. The court rejected his appeal of a lower court decision, which uh, he was trying to stop the Justice Department from using the classified documents found during the search of Mar-a-Lago in August. He wants the government to be forced to return the documents to him, which I guess he thinks is going to stop the Justice Department's criminal investigation in, in connection with the documents. The Supreme Court, his Supreme Court, three justices, they rejected him. Now, the ruling followed press reports that a Trump employee told the FBI that his government officials sought to retrieve thousands of documents that Trump was keeping in Mar-a-Lago. He personally ordered the employee to move the boxes containing the documents to his residence. Security camera footage of the employee moving the boxes corroborates the story. And that testimony obviously could be used in an obstruction of justice case against Trump. This is what he's dealing with. And then there's a video that surfers. I mean, this one is just almost beyond belief. And this is why Trump lost. Because people just, you can never relax with this asshole. It's always something. It's never anything good for the country. It's always something, some of his bullshit. A video service surfaced of his great friend and his political consultant, the former Nixon consultant, Roger Stone. He called Trump's daughter an abortionist bitch after Trump refused to pardon him for a second time following the events of January 6th. In the video, Stone is, is seen speaking on his phone, and he clearly wasn't speaking to Trump, saying, fuck you and fuck you and your abortionist bitch daughter. He knew he was being videotaped because it was for some documentary. That's how what he thinks of Trump. He was pissed at Trump. I mean, he needs two pardons. You know what? If you're hanging out with a guy who needs two pardons, maybe you shouldn't be hanging out with him. He uses Stone Trump to attack Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who should be the Republican nominee. DeSantis is actually wildly intelligent and competent. This is what Stone, at Trump's behest, said about DeSantis this year. Ron DeSantis, Yale, Harvard, fat boy, can't get out of his own way. Not smart, not honest, not going to be president. Yes, I guess like Roger fucking Stone and Donald Trump. They're the smart ones. They're the good-looking, thin guys who went to such great schools with such high IQs. Come on, Roger. And I know Roger. You can, you can do better than that. What do we care about? Do we care about the country or we just care about our client that's paying us? Again, a guy like Roger Stone working for you, that should be a reason to drop out of the race. No one is loyal to Trump as he's loyal to no one. And at a time that Joe Biden is destroying America, the leader of the Republican Party can't open up any kind of lead on him because he's the most hated man in America. He's the dumbest man in America, and he's the most incompetent man in America. And that says a lot about Donald Trump when you consider that Joe Biden is in America. And, and, and I don't even mean to criticize Trump. I take all that back. But my point is, is that the man can't win the election. So why continue to support him when you have a smarter, better, stronger, younger candidate who is kicking ass in Florida right in front of your face where you live? Right? I know I'm right on this. Just nod your head. He's right. That's all you have to say. Think it. Nod your head and say he's right. <sighs> now, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to come right back and, and talk about something that is driving me bonkers. 
It's the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race that's going on. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back. And there's a hugely important Senate race going on in Pennsylvania right now. It's hugely important as the Republican incumbent is retiring and the seat is up for grabs. And we all know that the Senate is right now at 50-50. So every seat really matters. And right now, the leader in the race is the Democrat, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who is by all accounts, uh, even his own, a far leftist. He's all for criminal justice reform, and I'm putting that in air quotes. He won't come out and say that he disagrees with the defund the police crowd, but as the chair of the state board of pardons in Pennsylvania, he's released 10 first-degree murderers who would have otherwise died in prison. And I can't rightly disagree with that as a blanket policy. You can't just decide that if you're convicted of murder that you're not eligible for parole because, you know, if you, you you have to look to see how they've changed in prison, if at all. And if they haven't, you leave them in there if you're not 100% certain that they uh, can be trusted when they get out. But he also commissioned two reports last year released by the Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity. Can you imagine what that group is like? Uh, they recommended that the Bureau of Prisons consider merit-based clemency for currently incarcerated second-degree murderers, as well as for the state legislature to reform the law that mandates life sentences without parole for second-degree murder convictions. And Fetterman called for the release of 1,200 second-degree murderers who received life sentences without the chance for parole. And in a state where crime is up so much, you know, that you'd think that would be a big issue. And, you know, you'd think that the voters, the first thing they'd like to do, uh, you know, with their elected officials, they'd like to stay alive. I think that's important, that staying alive is important. His opponent, however, of course, is the Trump-backed Dr. Oz. The rich Turkish-born TV doctor still has a Turkish passport. I think he's a, a dual citizen. And, of course, Turkey is a Muslim terror state. And he lives in New Jersey. I guess that's not a problem when you're running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. And as I said, he got the nomination solely due to Donald Trump endorsing him. And Trump said the reason he endorsed him is because Oz is on TV. He's famous. You know, in, that, in Trump's world, in his fucking pea brain, that's what matters for competence is that if you're on TV a lot. He's got other issues. He owns 10 homes, but thinks he only owns two. And he's a liberal. Uh, you know, he's had shows where he advocated for sex changes for minors. That's liberal. Okay. Now, he's not as far left as Fetterman, which, of course, is why I suppose he's being castigated as a, a, a Trumpite. But this is not a MAGA dude at all. This guy is a liberal. What great choices you have in Pennsylvania. Now, Fetterman was supported by his wealthy parents until he was 49 years old. Think about that. He lived with them. They paid him a $54,000 a year salary until he was 49 years old. Now he lives in a home paid for by his sister. His wife is a former undocumented illegal immigrant from Brazil. This is the perfect example of a Democrat. All right. He's married to a criminal. He slept on a couch and gets supported by his parents until he's nearly 50. But forget all that. Forget all that. Let's not, that's not the focus of this particular rant. Fetterman, if you've, if you haven't seen him, he's six foot, eight inches tall, bald, tattooed. He wears hoodies. He, he frankly, and look, and I'm going to say this politely, he looks like a circus freak. 
you know, literally like one of those, you go to the circus, you give them two bits and they show you the freaks. And that's what Fetterman looks like. Now he had a stroke in May and he's refused to hand over recent medical records. He's refused to debate Oz. Now he's agreed to one, you know, mainly because the handful of times he's been forced to speak in public, it's clear that something is wrong with his brain. He needs a computer during the one debate that he's going to have that he begrudgingly agreed to. And by the way, he made sure that the debate was as close as possible to the election day. Why? Because Democrats like to vote early. They like to vote early. They like to send in those absentees and they like to vote early. So he figured if I have the debate very late and everyone sees that I'm just like three quarters of a fucking vegetable, it'll be too late to withdraw their votes. That's why he did it. Now, when he had the stroke, America was told that he was fine, that there was no issue. He's completely fine. And they would hide him. They wouldn't let him speak. And there would always be a reason, you know, he couldn't do debates. He would blame it on Oz. And the truth is he couldn't speak, but he could tweet like crazy because he obviously wasn't doing the tweeting. And it was clear when he had to speak that his brain just wasn't right. Now, I've got two clips for you. I want you to listen to these. I'm going to play them consecutively. Please understand the stakes in this race. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, excuse me, in D.C. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here. And when I leave tonight, I got three miles away. Dr. Oz in his mansion in New Jersey, you've got a friend and you have an ally. Send me to Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steelworkers. Send me to Washington, D.C. To take on to make sure I push back against work to work. I mean, this is a dude that's just, you know, really confused. And look, I have empathy for the guy that he's obviously got scrambled brains. But, you know, this is an important thing that he's he's running for. It's not like he's running for dog catcher. He's running for one of the two senators for Pennsylvania, a hugely important state. So maybe, I don't know, is it asking a lot that your senator, you know, actually not have brain damage? I don't know. I, I think that that should be a prerequisite to be an American senator, that you don't have like kind of massive brain damage. And as I said, um, we were told that he was just fine after the stroke, but what we weren't told that the cause of the stroke was a heart condition that he previously kept from the public. He lied. That was a lie of omission. In an effort to convince the public that he was fine in June when people were freaking out, he released a letter from his cardiologist saying that he could serve in the Senate. And to him, that was, you know, that's all he had to turn over. But if you actually read the letter, and I did, I don't think anybody's ever read this letter. The letter was awful because the doctor mentioned, now think about this. They got this from the doctor to help him. So they were basically assuming that this doctor was going to write, you know, his lie his ass off to help him. But in the letter, it's mentioned that Fetterman had come to see the doctor in 2017, was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, which is uh, fibrillation. I sound like him now. <laughs> um, and it's an irregular heartbeat. As, and as well, he also had a weakened heart pump. And that's what caused the stroke, the doctor wrote. But what's so awful is that in the same letter from the cardiologist, he wrote that Fetterman was given medicine and a new life uh, routine to combat his condition and told to return to the doctor in a few months. 
And he was basically told, look, these are, uh, these are what you have to take if you want to stay alive. But again, those clips that I just played, it's just bonkers, man. It's just bonkers. That's not somebody who's okay, right? Anyway, he was told to come back in a few months, and he didn't return. And he stopped taking the drugs. And shockingly, he had the stroke. He only went back to the cardiologist to get the letter to say that he could serve. So he failed to disclose a prior serious heart condition, which caused the stroke, making it very difficult for him to to serve competently as a senator. But he's forced to admit that he completely blew off the doctor for five years until he nearly died. Who does this after getting such important, serious medical news? This isn't like his big toe. This isn't like a hemorrhoid. This is his heart. That's what keeps him alive. And now he refuses to release any more medical records, despite the fact that the other day he did a sit-down interview with a reporter. And he handpicked the reporter, obviously. It's from NBC. They're liberals. But he needed a computer to basically act as, as closed captioning. He would hear the questions. They would show up on the screen in, screen in writing, and only after he could read it, because he's obviously got something wrong with his auditory skills, he can't process sounds because his brains are fucked up. And the reporter, just the reporter, this is a liberal reporter, she pointed out afterward that he was unable to engage in any kind of small talk before the interview, which really shouldn't be a surprise because he can't hear words correctly. He can't understand them. I mean... You heard the videos of, or the audio of him talking. His brain's not working right. And he needs a machine to help his brain understand what he's hearing. But what was incredible to me is the reporter just did her job and she was right down the middle. She got dragged unmercifully for reporting simply what she saw. This isn't from Breitbart. She's from NBC. This is a leftist media outlet. She just reported what she saw. And every leftist media outlet accused her of bullying a disabled man because she pointed out that he was obviously disabled and couldn't carry on a conversation with her. These are skills. That's the skill set that you may need in order to become a senator, like being able to hear and understand words. I mean, I think that's important. Uh, he went from being fine after the stroke to when it was clear that he wasn't. And now he's disabled, the, the liberals are saying. He's disabled, and we should help him become senator because he's disabled. Like, now we need to stand up for the disabled. They even compared him to FDR, who was also a disabled man who held office, except that FDR couldn't walk. This ape can't speak or think. That's a slight difference, wouldn't you think? And the guy's wife... This freak's wife came out so hard against the reporter and said she should be punished. All she did was report that the guy couldn't carry on a conversation for the same reason that he needed the machine to, to type up the words that he was hearing. The guy's wife said that, she was, that the reporter was discriminating uh, against him. And he's sitting there like babbling like, like he's a squash. He's like a fucking gourd, like a Halloween gourd, you know? The wife, the former illegal undocumented alien, she's gaslighting us, telling us that this hugely newsworthy news that a Senate candidate is unable to perform his duties as senator, it's his condition, which he himself caused due to the dereliction of his own health, that, that we should ignore it and that the reporter should be punished or possibly fired for reporting this news. 
this fucking illegal is saying that the reporter should be fired for doing her job. How utterly insane is this? This is how far we've fallen? If we go to war, should we let the armless and the legless fight in the armed forces? And if anyone objects, we should cry discrimination? Let's let a blind deaf man play center field for the Yankees. If you object, then you're just a bigot who discriminates against the disabled. This is leftism. This is why I hate it. It's sick. Beyond all this, when it's clear that the guy has damaged goods, this is the sickest part of all. You ready for this? He's up in the polls. Why not just elect a, a, a plate of boiled shrimp as your senator? Or maybe like a, a sliced half of grapefruit. It's got the same ability as John Fetterman to be a senator. Is this how far we've fallen? It's not like Oz, as I said, is some kind of MAGA. He's a liberal himself. But he's just not practically a communist like this bald freak is, who, by the way, and he's got another issue, another physical condition, which he refuses to discuss. Look at the pictures. Google it online. He's got this giant lump. It looks like the size of like a small fetus that's growing out of the back of his neck. And when he appears in public, he wears scarves to hide it. And that's why he wears those giant hoodies with the, with the, the hood in the back up high, you know? That's to guard so that no one can see the fucking thing growing out of the, the back of his neck. We're about to allow in the Senate some circus freak with two heads. You remember that movie? I, I don't know if you watched this when you were a kid. I know I did. The movie with Rosie Greer, the football player. It was called The Thing with Two Heads. It had two heads on his shoulders. We're letting a former illegal immigrant from a toilet bowl country, a third world country, tell us that we're bad for wanting someone who can't understand words and got a fucking baby growing out of the back of his neck. We should be, be feel guilty about not wanting that in the Senate. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, but country first occasionally, right? I, I've just got one more topic to talk about before I go into the Hells Angels case. And it's good. I'm going to actually do the opening statement and I'm actually going to do some cross-examination for you because I want you to hear it. I want you to, uh, you know, see how it's done. And this is stuff that's never been done before, but there's one more issue. I I'm sorry. I I've got to talk about this. And I know, I know you're saying, oh, not again, not again, Jeff, stop. We're going to turn to something else, another podcast. Just stop. But I, I received an avalanche of emails about my commentary about the, the Palestinian terror enclave, where I accurately noted that they're a stain on humanity. I'm sorry. It's true. They didn't disappoint me this week. They're good terrorist leader the Holocaust-denying murderer Mahmoud Abbas, who received his PhD in Holocaust denial in the Soviet Union, well, he met with Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. This was days after Putin launched multiple missile attacks on civilian targets across the Ukraine, killing hundreds. And it was an attempt to rally Russians after all of the their own military setbacks in the Ukraine. And this was just days after Putin continued to threaten the world with the first use of nuclear weapons since 1945. And there was a boss, a murderous dictator, embracing the Russian murderous dictator. And this is what he said. And listen, I want you to be objective. Don't just think to yourself, well, it's just the fucking Palestinians and they're just the scumbag degenerate. No, 
No. Listen to this objectively. This is a so-called world leader who we give billions of dollars to. Quote, we know perfectly well that, that Russia stands for justice, for international law, he said. That's what Abbas said. This is a guy, Putin, who invaded the Ukraine, his neighbor, and is slaughtering citizens, children, anybody. Can you imagine the idiocy of Abbas to say this publicly? They invaded their neighbor, Russia, killing innocent people. And this Arab idiot thinks that Russia stands for justice and international law? Russia? And Abbas added that Russia should take precedence over America when it comes to trying to broker a peace deal with Israel. How about go fuck yourself and your terrorists as well? Go to Russia for money instead of the U.S. taxpayer. Why are we helping these scumbags out? Abbas and Hamas, the so-called good and bad Palestinian terrorist leaders who also support Iran in its deadly crackdown on protesters in that country, and Assad, the Syrian president dictator butcher who gassed children in Syria. This is who they support. What a coincidence. Iran, Syria, Russia, who else on the planet supports those three? North Korea? Satan? We give these the diseased, fanatical killers billions of dollars, as I said. They, they strap bombs onto kids and celebrate when children are killed. Say what you want about Trump, but he cut those terrorist scumbags off, and so should Biden. Palestinians take our money and they spit in our faces. They kill our allies. They kill Americans, and they expect us to thank them for it. Even China knows enough not to praise Putin for what he's doing in the Ukraine. Russia's biggest ally. But the Palestinians are celebrating Putin for his slaughter. And everybody just says, eh, it's Palestinians. What do you expect from them? They're dumb. They're violent. You know, maybe it's time that we stand up and say, enough. Looks like I'm about 40 minutes or so in. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit more of the Hell's Angels. Uh, I've got you here. Uh, we're going to go back to that client. Uh, he was charged with two counts of extortion, if you recall. Oh, everybody calm down after that Palestinian segment. He was charged with two counts of extortion in federal court, and the trial was scheduled for early 2012. This was a case in which a music promoter named Artie Pabon borrowed money from an alleged mafia-connected businessman named Rodriguez, and he couldn't pay it back. Some scary Hells Angels showed up, supposedly, and threatened them was the story. And now the Hells Angels and the supposed mafia-connected businessman and others who supplied the loan money were charged in Manhattan Federal Court. My client's name is Joe, and I'm going to refer to him as Joe G going forward. And I'm going to do the opening statement in this case for you, even though it happened so many years ago. And I may even give you some of the cross of Artie Pabone. As I reported uh, last podcast, Joe was a very large, very muscular, very bald, very tattooed Hell's Angel, who was also Italian. Certainly a scary person if he showed up on your doorstep and he uh, was angry. But beyond the alleged extortion of the music promoter Artie Pabone, the government brought a second extortion charge against my client and, and the businessman Rodriguez. The alleged victim in that case's name was Roy Pavichik. Same type of loan made, the money wasn't paid back, and my client and Rodriguez allegedly showed up and threatened him and roughed him up. And that was the case. Two extortion victims and tapes made by Artie Pabone, who was wired up by the FBI. 
Now, as I said last week, the only information the government gave us about Artie Pabone was that he had gambled away 550000 in casinos in the years 2009 through 11, so the three years prior to the trial. And that's pretty much all the impeachment material they gave us. They turned over the fact that Pabone had been arrested for beating his wife, but they successfully convinced the judge to keep it out of the trial. Now, naturally, if Pabone could give us an answer during cross, which would open the door to me asking about the wife beating arrests and I would, you know, have to provoke him into doing that, which I expected to do. That's the only way we could have gotten it in. If somehow he made some kind of comment that he would never harm a fly or somebody that he cared about, it would be tough to get him out of him, but I'd get it out of him. Regardless, it was up to us to investigate Pabone on our own. If not, uh, and his credibility withstood my cross-examination, then Joe G would be going to jail for about five or six years, which is what my guess was. Now, as a client, Joe refused any plea deal, which included prison time, which was impossible to achieve based on the charges of extortion. I mean, they were just too serious, and they came with pretty much guaranteed jail time. If he pled to anything in the indictment, it was a slam dunk for jail. And even worse was that everybody else in the case had gotten jail and had pled guilty already. So, And they were all much less culpable than Joe G., the Hells Angels. So obviously, if he's convicted, he's going to jail. And if he takes any deal, he's going to jail because the judge was the one that sentenced everybody else to jail. But he was adamant that he wasn't going to go to prison for this, which seemed odd as the case appeared very strong. And he was the lead defendant, as I said, and had the most evidence against him. I paid you a lot of money. You're a great lawyer. I'm not going to jail. That's what he said to me over and over and over again. Now, clients expect a lot out of you when you're defending them. They want to be acquitted when the evidence is, is overwhelming. They want you to be available to answer the phone 24-7. And sometimes they don't even want to pay you on time or try not to pay you at all. I can tell you without any hesitation that if I'm uh, walking through a wall for a client, it helps when I'm uh, working on your case at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning to know that I've been paid. Sorry, we're all human as defense lawyers, and we all have our limits. Pay us, answer questions if we have them, and don't drive us crazy. That's pretty much what you have to do. And if you trust a lawyer, get out of his way and let him do the work. And it's not like I had, uh, if I had done no investigation of, of Artie, that I would have been incompetent. Because 95% of defense attorneys would have done nothing. This is the biggest takeaway that I want you, the listeners, to understand. Lawyers usually only take from the government materials for cross-examination. That's all they take. They take prior statements of the witness, cooperation agreement, prior criminal history. Almost no lawyers I know will get the files from the cases that are in the criminal history. All you got to do is send an investigator out. They'll send out no subpoenas. They'll go in there and they'll do the cross-examination that the government expects and the cross-examination that the government prepares the witness for. But this is the dirty secret about defense lawyers. Most are incredibly lazy. Most don't do the work themselves. And I'm not talking just about small criminal cases. I'm talking about even the biggest ones. Lawyers will have associates write cross-examinations, sometimes even do them for some of the witnesses because it make their, makes their workloads easier. And clients, no matter how appalled they are about this, they don't want to confront the surgeon who's about to operate on, his, on their brain. So they just eat it. In 31 years of practice, I've never had another lawyer working for me ask a question of a witness during a cross-examination during a trial. I've never had another lawyer help write one of my cross-examinations. And it shows. This is why I'm better at it than everybody else. It's my work. It's my voice. It's my full responsibility. Win or lose, and I want to win. 
Now, I'm going to read the opening statement of the extortion case of my Hells Angels client, Joe G., which never saw the light of day, as I said, for one reason only, because I convinced the prosecutor I was about to obliterate their sole witness, uh, the alleged victim uh, in the case, the music promoter, Artie Pabone, and they dropped the extortion charges and let Joe plead to a fabricated, just invented count of misprison of felony with no jail time, which, as I said, was the best deal in the case even though everybody else was less responsible for the crime than my client, according to the government. And I'm going to also go over some of the cross-examination of him. It truly was a a fantastic one that if I had actually been able to do it, probably a top five cross of my career. So you, dear listeners, are going to listen to it because I couldn't get a jury to listen to it. So too bad. And, And this is what separates this podcast, as I said, from other true crime podcasts. This isn't some produced bullshit about a trial where you're just reading off a script. These are the trials by the person who did the trials. And when you listen to the opening, remember that I had the prosecutor just days before the opening check with Artie, the victim, and ask him, have you ever lied under oath in a courtroom before? He told her he hadn't. And I had evidence that just days before our trial was scheduled to begin, He told the judge in his divorce case in Connecticut that he had zero dollars to his name. This was uh, under oath, that he had no money in his hands in the uh, prior months to either pay his wife the money that he owed her or even to be able to afford an attorney, despite secretly having blown over six figures on gambling during those months. You're going to hear my opening now and then some of the cross. It was a long one and it it was really powerful, but you know, you have things to do and you can't listen to a four hour cross today. At least I hope not. If you do, you're probably a shut in. So I'm going to give you the opening, which again, I'm certain would have knocked him off his feet. I'm talking about the opening of the cross. I'm going to give you that part and I may not be able to fit it into this podcast. I may have to do it in the next one, but I think it sets the tone, the cross, the beginning, which is what I like to do is knock you off your feet put the government back on their heels and set the tone in front of the jury as to what I want to accomplish. Namely, you cannot believe a single word that comes out of their mouths, the witnesses. And these are my notes from from February 2012. This is the actual opening. Not a word has been changed other than me uh, referring to Joe, his full name, as just Joe G. That's it. Everything else is exactly the same. So I'm going to read this now. I've got a little more time, and hopefully you do too. But this is how an opening goes. And it may not sound the same because I'm not doing it in front of a jury, but this was the opening that never happened. If a stranger from another planet came into this courtroom today and listened to the prosecutor's opening statement, he or she would assume that what was said is undisputed evidence, and we'd all go home. You'd miss out on some free lunches, relax, they won't be good ones, and we go right to sentencing for Mr. G. I'm here to tell you right now that there is a reason that we're all here for a trial this week. Just because the government tells you something does not make it so. The government does not corner the market on credibility and honesty, because what I'm saying and what Ms. Berg, that's the prosecutor, said in her opening, we're just lawyers. Our words are not evidence. What the government tells you that matters comes in the form of evidence that they will present to you at this trial. What their evidence is comes in a few forms. Ultimately, however, you're going to have to believe their witnesses in order to convict Mr. G. And the evidence that the government presents is not just what comes out on direct examination of these witnesses. The cross-examinations count too. 
And unlike the direct examinations, as you'll learn during this trial, the cross-examinations are not carefully scripted endeavors that are asked from a prosecutor's outline. They are spontaneous. They test the witnesses by making them think on their feet. They are the crucibles of truth. And when all is said and done, the evidence will show that the main witness in this case, the witness who will dominate this trial, Artie Pabone, this one single witness that the prosecution hangs its hat on, is so desperately flawed that it is simply impossible to believe him, let alone believe him beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard by which you have to judge their case against Mr. G. It's just impossible to convict based on this man. And I'm going to tell you why. Artie Pabone will come in here and will attempt to do to you what he has done to people and judges and courts his entire life. Deceive you. Defraud you. He will play the victim, the innocent victim, preyed upon by bad men. But don't be fooled. The evidence will show that he is a predator. And he will do or say anything to get what he wants. He thinks so little about our system of justice that he lied under oath just days ago in court. And you know why the government finally learned about it? Not because Artie Pabone volunteered it. He didn't. He was hoping to get away with it. The government learned of it because they were tipped off by counsel for the defendant. Artie Pabone didn't tell them. Artie Pabone tried to get away with another lie, another fraud. I'm Jeffrey Lickman, along with my associate, Jeffrey Einhorn. We represent Joe G. First, we'd like to thank you for your jury service. We know it's inconvenient, but you're here because you understand that jury service is one of the most important obligations we have as citizens in our great democracy. And I promise you, no one thought the Giants had a chance to make it to the Super Bowl when we picked this date for the trial in November. <coughs> That's a dated opening statement, isn't it? Anyway, this seems like a pretty simple case, just a handful of witnesses and a bunch of tapes. Short trial. And as I said before, there is one main government witness in this case, Artie Pabone. And if you listen to the government, the tapes made by Pabone with the FBI are the end all and be all. And they have told you that Pabone has credibility problems, but that the tapes will support his story. And that supposedly cleans up his credibility issues. Well, that you don't need to worry about his history of lies and perjury because of the tapes? Here is what I must stress to you at the very beginning of this case, and this is crucial. The evidence will show that every single tape created in this case was part of a script, part of a play. These tapes are not a window into the truth of what truly occurred between the men involved, and then they, instead they are part of a manipulation in multiple acts in which the evidence that the government will present to you has been shaped by Artie Pabone and the agents and officers who directed him. And the manipulations were put in place solely for this day, for this trial, the evidence will show. Now, I'm going to explain to you what I mean. First off, keep in mind that only Pabone knows that his meetings and calls are being taped with Mr. G and Mr. Rodriguez. So he is shaping how he is perceived on these tapes, perceived by you. And the sole purpose of creating the tapes is to create evidence for this case. And nearly everything Pabone does and says on these tapes is fake. To begin, the way he presents himself to you is that of a hapless, vulnerable victim. It's just not true. You will be played tapes that were made especially for you, made by the FBI and Artie Pabone. And as I said, when only Pabone knew that the conversations were being taped. 
and I want you to follow along with the tapes carefully. You'll need to because the manipulation is subtle. You'll notice how Pabone constantly tries to bring up how scared he is and how scared he was during the September 3, 2008 meeting in which he claims he was being threatened to be thrown out of a window. He brings it up even when the conversation has nothing to do with it. He makes believe that he's terrified on tape about it. Even when the FBI is sitting outside, he's not scared. He's play-acting. He's got agents with guns nearby. Nothing's going to happen to him. He's not going to uh, he's going to uh, be hurt in a public restaurant with people around. He's scared because he's acting scared. It helps him to appear like a victim and makes the other guys in the conversation the criminals. As for the September 3, 2008 threat, Mr. G and Rodriguez never once acknowledged that this threat ever happened, if you listen to the tapes. If you're going to threaten to throw someone out the window to force them to pay money owed, why not admit that you made that threat in order to acknowledge, reinforce, and reissue that threat, especially when the target of the threat continues to not pay what he's owed? Curiously, no mention of the I'm going to throw you out the window threat ever shows up on the dozen hours of taped conversations. Why? Because it never happened. Similarly, notice how Pabone constantly claims on tape how terrified he was when the defendant and Milton Rodriguez showed up outside his house a few weeks later in October of 2008. Listen how many times Pabone brings up the house visit on tape and claims uh, that it was a visit designed to threaten him. He'll bring it up even when the conversation has nothing to do with that subject. He's hoping over and over that the defendant and Milton Rodriguez will claim that the visit was a threat. And over and over on tape, you're going to hear Mr. G and Rodriguez say, Hey, we came to your house because you stopped payment on a check and you wouldn't answer your phone for weeks and weeks. What else are we supposed to do? Again, why not admit that the house visit was a threat if it really was a threat? After all, don't the men want Pabone to pay? By saying over and over that it was just an attempt to talk to Pabone, they're basically saying, we're not threatening you. And seriously, if you want to visit someone's house to scare them into paying, why not ring the doorbell? But Pabone repeatedly said how terrified he was on tape, how scared he was for his family. He's trying to manipulate the listener into thinking that his reaction was justified. And therefore, that was done to him off the tape was truly terrifying. So in essence, the evidence will show that Pabone is creating evidence, creating a false perception. Not that evidence is being captured spontaneously. Every single thing out of his mouth was designed to manipulate a jury someday. And today is that day. And as I said, the evidence is clear that he tries to appear sad and scared, a real victim, knowing the tapes are being made by the FBI solely to be used in a criminal case against Mr. G and others. But he lies. For example, he constantly says on tape how broke he is, how he desperately wants to pay the money he owes, but just can't because his shows that he's producing are doing so poorly. That's a flat-out lie, although he sounds pretty convincing on tape. He says it a hundred times. But the evidence will show that he lost $550,000 in gambling the past few years, which would have paid every debt this man had, including his mortgage payments on the house he defaulted on and the debt to Mr. Rodriguez. Somehow, Pabone neglects to mention that the reason his business is in such dire straits is because he gambled hundreds of thousands of dollars away, not because his concerts are doing poorly. He pissed the money away. 
But if he told the truth on tape, he couldn't be the victim anymore. And he needs to be the victim in order to get a conviction here. He keeps repeating how scared he is, keeps saying uh, over and over how sad he is, how worried he is about his family. But he doesn't give a damn about his family, as you're going to find out soon during his cross-examination. As the evidence will show, Pabone says things to give the appearance that he's reacting to being threatened, that he's terrified, but he's not. It's an act. I'm going to show you that during his cross-examination. But until then, I leave you with this thought. If a guy is willing to lie in court just days ago over literally nothing, what makes you think he won't lie to you when he has the ability to get rid of a six-figure debt, to get it extinguished by being protected by the FBI? And the fact that he's a liar, well, you're permitted to consider the true impact of Mr. G's actions on Pabone in determining whether Pabone was extorted, not the faked act that he projects on tape. That means you'll be able to decide for yourself if the fear that Pabone is claiming on the tapes is real. But the evidence will show that Pabone has lied in court before about his feelings, about his circumstances, about being a victim of his circumstances. In essence, this is the point, and it's a subtle one. Your determination of whether you think an extortion took place will be impacted in part on what Pabone truly feels on these tapes. It's natural to think that he's in fear. That means he's reacting to a scary situation, and, but the evidence are going to show otherwise. In the tapes, as well as during his cross-examination, that he wasn't scared at all, that he was acting, that he was pretending because he knew that if he could get these men arrested— his debt to Mr. Rodriguez would be wiped out. Now, I don't expect him to claim that he wasn't scared. However, he'll say it. He'll certainly going to say it. But don't believe him. Pabone will just be caught in more lies and be forced to admit so much fraud that you'll have a hard time believing anything he says is the truth I respectfully submit to you. And as I said, he'll admit that he's not just a serial liar and a serial fraudster, but a guy who lies under oath in court just days ago while he was cooperating with the government. He's not afraid to lie, to cheat, in court, in front of a judge. That's my guarantee to you. He will admit it. As I've said, the evidence will show that everything on these tapes from Pabon's side is a fake, a fraud, an artifice, an effort to get Mr. Rodriguez and Mr. G to say something scary. When Pabon is not constantly faking his fear about these men, knowing full well he's creating evidence for a trial, when he's not constantly faking his fear, Pabon is trying to provoke Mr. Rodriguez and Mr. G. The evidence will show that he knows he has them on tape, and he knows that if he can get them charged criminally, again, he is off the hook for his debt. So this supposedly terrified extortion victim does all that he can to anger his targets. That's what victims do, right? Isn't that what victims do? They want to anger the people that are threatening them? He agrees to put a lien on his house in favor of Mr. Rodriguez in order to secure the debt he owes him. And then he withdraws that offer as he claims his made-up lawyer told him not to do it. He agrees that he owes Rodriguez money, then he claims he doesn't. That he's only going to pay out of the kindness of his heart, then he flip-flops a dozen times on tape about whether he owes the money. Pabone says he wants his imaginary lawyer to sit in on a meeting with Rodriguez, and Rodriguez says, fine, that's great. And Pabone says that his lawyer is now not coming to a meeting. He promises to pay money one day. The next day, he claims he's broke, even though the money that he would have been paying came from the FBI as a prop. Why did he break that promise to pay over and over again on the tapes? so that he could provoke an angry response from 
Mr. G, and Rodriguez. That's what the evidence will show. And the evidence will show that the agents made up those provocations for him. Because you can't have extortion defendants unless they're angry on tape, right? And wouldn't you know it, that sort of provocation by Pabon will show in the evidence that Mr. G and Rodriguez, they get angry at times because of it. They're getting whipsawed by Pabon. They eventually say, say things they shouldn't have. And haven't we all times in our lives when faced with a liar who keeps changing his story, who keeps trying to evade responsibility, who keeps provoking us? Haven't we all said things in anger and frustration just to try to stop being treated like a fool? Rodriguez gets so frustrated with Pabona times on these tapes, and you're going to hear it, that he just starts making stuff up, ridiculous lies, in an effort to convince Pabon to pay him. That's really some extortion. Rodriguez tells him that Mr. G is his family member, that they're related. And then later he says he's a scary guy who has people who have infiltrated law enforcement. That he, Rodriguez, is going to get Pabon arrested for owing him money. That the attorney general had already sued Pabon. He claims he said that, he, that the AG, the attorney general, already sued Pabon. Pabon didn't know this, apparently, for defamation of character. He's just making stuff up, all ridiculous lies, in an attempt to coerce Pabon to pay what he owes. And there's more lies. Here's a whopper. Rodriguez claims on tape that Mr. G was hired by individuals who Rodriguez himself owes money to, and that Mr. G was hired by those individuals to keep an eye on the money that Pabon owes Rodriguez. It makes no sense. First, he's a family member, and now this? The obvious conclusion I would suggest that the evidence will show is why would Rodriguez dishonestly coerce Pabon with such repeated silly lies if he could simply send a leg breaker to make the collections? The leg breaker, according to the evidence in the case, who a year after Artie Pabon stopped giving any of the government money to Mr. Rodriguez, never touched a hair on Pabon's head or even called him or visited his house. The leg breaker, who the evidence will show, has construction and demolition businesses and even has a flooring company. That's Joe G. But wait, he's in the Hell's Angels, so he must be a criminal, right? Here's a truth that the judge will remind you before begin, you begin deliberating. Membership in the Hell's Angels is not a crime. It may conjure up all sorts of movie scenes with outlaw biker gangs in your head, but being in the Hell's Angels does not make you a criminal. So what other evidence is there besides Artie Pabone and his tapes? Well, you've got Roy Pavichik. He's another guy who was involved in business with uh, Milton Rodriguez. He claims that a large Hispanic man with brown hair grabbed him by the neck and ordered him to pay back Rodriguez in April of 2009. He told an officer that the person who did this was Milton's old childhood friend. This alleged attack took place in broad daylight in a crowded parking lot of a restaurant in Connecticut, which apparently no one saw. Less than three years later, he doesn't recall that uh, Milton Rodriguez referred to as uh, the individual as Joe or that he was even threatened in the crowded parking lot in the middle of the day. He remembers none of it. But for, forget three years later. 17 months after the incident supposedly occurred, the FBI showed Mr. Pavichik a photo array of six individuals to see if he can pick out Mr. G as the person who supposedly threatened them, even though he, he can't even remember that a threat occurred according to him now. And don't you know, the evidence will show that instead of six Hispanic men with brown hair in the pictures, because that's how he initially described his attacker, the FBI showed him pictures of six bald men who are not Hispanic. 
and he still couldn't pick Mr. G out. They knew that his description was wrong, that the, it was a Hispanic man with brown hair. So what did they do? They presented him with pictures of six bald, non-Hispanic men solely to try to get him to pick out Mr. G, and it didn't work. This is the sort of dishonest garbage that this investigation is all about. And you'll see some other evidence that the government is trying to shape what you see and not revealing the full truth of what occurred here between these men. Wait till you see how badly they want a conviction here. It'll come out and keep especially close eye during Artie Pabone's cross. You'll see exactly what the government did not want you to see about him. All the fraud, the lies he's committed while cooperating with the government, and yet for some reason he gets away with it. Can you guess why? Because as the evidence will show, they didn't investigate Pabone at all. They turned a blind eye because they wanted Mr. G that badly. In conclusion, it will be easy to convict this man if you just gloss over the evidence and look at him and see a big guy with a bald head who's in the Hell's Angels. And then you hear some tapes with a seemingly terrified victim. I know if you don't pay attention carefully, it will be tough to keep an open mind. But remember, Artie Pabone will come in here and will attempt to do to you what he has done to people his entire life. Deceive you. Defraud you. He will play the victim, the innocent victim preyed upon by bad men. None of this is true. So I appreciate the difficulty in keeping an open mind, but there is a reason why this group of you were chosen as jurors for this case. There were a lot of people who came through this door and they were questioned by Judge Forrest about their ability to be fair. And only you were judged by both sides to be the ones we felt could be fair here. And you owe it to the parties to keep an open mind. And you owe it to yourselves as American citizens too. Because God forbid one of you or any of your loved ones or friends were ever charged with a crime, you would pray that the people sitting in judgment of you or yours could keep an open and fair mind and carefully review the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Thank you. And that was the opening statement that never happened for Joe G. 11 years ago. And I don't have time on this podcast to go through some of the cross. I'm going to do that for next week's. That'll be next week's podcast. And I hope that this at least interests you a little bit and you'll tune back in. But this is how it's done. The opening statements are never as good as the summations because the summations, I actually get all the evidence out. I don't have to just tease it. I can drop it on, your, on the jury's heads. So the opening's never as good, but it was important for me to get out to the jury. This scumbag that's coming before you cannot be trusted. The government's case is garbage. It's foul. It's ruined because of Artie Pabone. And there, I think, I hope that they're set up for the evidence, for the cross-examination, the pounding that I was going to give him. And you know, when you write a good cross-examination, when you write any cross-examination, you know, for the most part, how it's going to go, because every question you're asking, you know the answer to. Other than a handful, when you've got the witness so beaten up that you know he's going to give you what you want, but you got to tie him up tight. You cannot give him any escape routes. That's the mark of a good cross-examination. And that's what you're going to hear next week on Beyond the Legal Limit with Jeffrey Lickman. You can find me on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.